Well, we are in a, a series of sermons, which I have entitled 12 Stages in the Bible. Taking these stages, of course, many of you know from uh, a book by Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Uh, it's a great book, just gives us the, the overview of, of the scriptures. So the, the stages aren't, aren't uh, native to me, but we have taken them. We are, are catching the big picture of the story of the Bible by, by studying the, the major historical eras in the time frame of the Bible. There, there's time for verse-by-verse exposition. We'll begin the book of Hebrews in the fall. Uh, there's time for macro exposition, which is what's going to take place today as we go through the entire book of Joshua. Um, just all just trying to continue to grasp and re- remind ourselves of the story of the Bible. We've identified 12 of these eras that we've been going through in 12 weeks. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence, gospel, church, and missions. Right? We sung a song. I think it's appropriate we sing a song, right? Uh, 12 stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Here you go. 12 stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, da 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 da, silence, gospel, church, and missions. Well, maybe next week all you can join me on the da 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 part, okay? That'd be kind of fun. Um, we're just going to keep doing that song, and hopefully then you'll be able to just to remember where our big picture are, so you can remember, okay, now where did the exile fit? Was that before or after the kings and the judges? How does it all fit? This will, this will help you, and I trust, bear uh, fruit in the end. Well, today we've come to the fourth stage entitled Conquest. We've seen the creation, we've seen the patriarchs, creation, patriarchs, the exodus, and now we're at the Conquest. And one of the things I've been struck with as I've preached through this is how interconnected and how tied they are together. God created a perfect world, but soon afterwards men fell into sin. What was once glorious and pure was then marred. Man rebelled against the Lord, plunged the world into sin, and God then destroyed the world because of the wickedness of man. Yet, still it didn't change the heart of men. Men is hearts are still sinful and worthy of death, but rather than giving up on the human race like he could have done, he instead chose a people for himself out of all the peoples on the earth. He went to Ur the Chaldeans and chose this man, Abraham, he made a covenant with him. He is the first of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with him and promised him that he would be a great nation and that they would come and have a land in which that nation would dwell and that God promised to bless this nation and through this nation all the families of the earth would be blessed and we are here today because God chose Abraham to bless him because in blessing Abraham then came the blessing of the Messiah and through the Messiah we've come to faith in him our sins wiped away have joy here on earth looking for a greater joy in heaven one of the things that struck us when we looked at the patriarchs we saw how disobedient they were Abraham was not necessarily a totally righteous man. He believed in God. Isaac wasn't necessarily a righteous man. And Jacob certainly wasn't a righteous man. But because God made a promise, he continued in his faithfulness to these people. Even hundreds of years later, after they had been, been cast into slavery in Egypt, God remembered how he was going to be kind to these people. And he brought them out of their distress in Egypt, delivered them out of their bondage that's known as the Exodus. And so they they came out of Egypt, and the the phase we're going to look at today is the conquest. Finally, the taking of the promised land, which God had promised to uh, Abraham hundreds of years later. That's what we mean by conquest, right? We mean conquering the promised land. The land that God had promised to the patriarchs. The story is told here in Joshua of how the land is taken. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. The story of the book of Joshua is set up in the very first verse, the very first chapter. Joshua 1.1, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. That's the time frame. Moses had died. And they needed someone then to take the people and lead them into the promised land. 
The Lord spoke to Joshua. Here it is. Joshua is the one who would take over for Moses, the son of Nun, Moses' servant. Joshua is introduced here as the son of Nun or the son of Nun. Um, Nun was a, a man of Israel. He's described as Moses' servant. He was, bottom line, really Moses' personal assistant. And we'll see how long, it, for, for 40, more than 40 years, Moses' personal assistant. He's commissioned to the task of taking the mantle from Moses, who is dead, to take the people back into the promised land. And Joshua's given a huge task. A huge task to take over from Moses. Millions of people to take them into the promised land. But the promises of God were equally as vast. Look what the promises were in verses 3 through 5. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I have spoke to Moses. From the wilderness in the north, in the south, and to this Lebanon in the north, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates in the east, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, it's the Mediterranean Sea, towards the west, towards the setting of the sun, that will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And though the task was large, the promises of God were equally large. And I believe that they would have come to, to, to Joshua in great comfort. Think about this. Every place where he walks, God has given that land into your hand. He just needs to get on, on about hiking through the land because God has given it to him. The territory was vast and, and God said that no one would be able to stand before him, that God would never leave him. <clears throat> God never left Moses. He's not going to leave you either, Joshua. And then the exhortation comes. The first command in the book of Joshua here. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Again, look at the continuity. You're going to get this land that I promised to give to your fathers. It goes back to the patriarchs. Through this exodus, that promise continues on. He says, be strong and courageous. Joshua, you need to be the strong and courageous leader of this nation. Three times in his first nine verses, he's told the same thing. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and courageous. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This task of leading these people in this promised land, there's, there's warfare out there, there are people to be conquered. In this, I'm going to be with you, Joshua. So be strong and courageous. And I love the way that God framed His exhortation. He didn't say, be strong and courageous so that I will give this people into your possession. As if the people, the conquering of the land was dependent upon Joshua to be strong and courageous. He didn't say be strong and courageous so that the Lord your God will be with you. As if God will be with you only if you're strong and courageous. But if you're timid, He's not going to be with you. No, it's exactly the, the opposite. He said be strong and courageous because you shall give this people possession of this land. It's precisely because He knows you're going to give it, so be strong and courageous and bold in going after it. He said, be strong and courageous, verse 9, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's with you. Therefore, be strong and courageous. And I trust that you see the difference in what I'm trying to push out here, that God is telling, telling Joshua to be strong and courageous because He's guaranteed the success. Be bold, be strong, be courageous. I'm with you. Isn't there a way in which the little bully, the, the, the little child, rather, Stands up strong to the bully when his big brother, linebacking brother, is right behind him, right? And isn't there a way in which, which you're bolder to go into enemy territory if you have a police escort? You go into a difficult part of town if you have a police escort coming in and out, you're like, hey, not a problem. I've got a police escort. I can be bold. That's what um, God was telling Joshua here. Be bold because I'm with you. 
And so likewise, we can be bold in our faith because Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As God was with Joshua, Jesus is with us. We ought to be strong and courageous. We ought to be bold with the gospel. And you couple that with Romans 8.28, God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And you know that God's going to cause it to work together for the good. So speak out. Proclaim Christ. Be bold and courageous. If anyone was able to do this, it was Joshua. Joshua didn't come out of nowhere. In my study this week, this is probably the thing that, that gripped me most. It, it, it's the role that Joshua played in the days of Mo, Moses, which no one seems to notice. So, let me ask you, what do you know about Joshua before Joshua chapter 1? Can, can, you, can you think in your mind of things you know about Joshua? Audience participation, do you, do you, can you think about things of Joshua? He's one of the spies? Good. Great. That's one thing. What else, Gary? Yeah, we're going to see that. Went up the mountain of Moses with Moses. Other things? Nathan? He did. Exactly right. Wonderful. Do you guys know that he fought the Malachite War? Before this week, I probably knew that, but I'd forgotten it, or maybe I didn't know that. But I learned that this week. The Malachite War. Let's start there. Exodus 17. And what I want to do is I want to really start and show you Joshua. I I want to show you who he is and what he did even before this time because God was preparing him to lead. He didn't just just, poof, come out of nowhere to lead. And we're going to start, start here with this war with Amalekites since you brought up Nathan. Thank you. Good. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by the kids at our church, right? Um... And know this, is that great men don't rise up from nowhere. I think about Charles Spurgeon. He was probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. He, uh, he was called to pastor the New Park Street Chapel in London at the age of 19, a very influential church in uh, London, and soon it swelled to thousands. Here was this young man pastoring the church. Sure, he was greatly gifted, but, but don't miss the fact that his father and his grandfather were both pastors. And he grew up in a home with a... a he grew up in his grandfather's home, actually, with um, books surrounding him. He's read and read and read. God filled his mind with the greatness of himself. He had a father and a grandfather who could ask his question, answer his questions pastorally, biblically, theologically. And he, just had a, he learned when he was young the truth of God, and it carried him through. Think about John MacArthur, I think arguably the best preacher of our day. He's a fifth-generation preacher. I mean, his father was a preacher, his grandfather was a preacher, his great-grandfather was a preacher, his great-great-grandfather was a preacher. And, and what that helps with is the, is the fact that you're in a preacher's home, a pastor's home, you, you understand a lot of things that's inherent about church. I know some things about orthopedic surgery merely because that's what my dad is, was, is, is. Though he's retired, he still, he still is. But there's just some things you pick up, and, and the knowledge that MacArthur received as a young boy allows him to do what he can do today and just teach the Bible well to the nation and really to the world, he will go down as one of the greatest preachers in history. And I'm no different. I'm not a, I'm not a self-made man. I think about um, the heritage I have. I stood my, my mom and dad up here earlier. I come from a home of a stable marriage with a, a mom and dad married for 50 years. I'm a product of that. Every year of my life, I've seen them seeking to work out the biblical example. And even my dad alluded to the fact it was 21 years ago that we, we finally, as a family, got, got exposed to Bible teaching. And I saw a change in my family and that, my dad and my parents. And that, and that has changed me and shaped me, even though I was out of college. Still, there was, there was enough there, but that has helped. I don't come from, any, from nowhere. And Joshua didn't either. He was prepared for his tour of duty because God prepared him. And I think about how appropriate our message is today on Father's Day. Right? That's why I want to look back at Joshua. Look at the ways in which he became a spiritual leader. Ways in which God trained him in the crucible of life and just really exhort you fathers to, to train your children to be an up-and-coming Joshua. I mean, my, my heart and my desire is for kids to, to raise up and stand on our shoulders and go far beyond what Yvonne and I have, have ever done, faith and love for Christ. Well, my first point here is Joshua. Okay, just Joshua. We're just going to look at him, and, and the idea is that we've got a lot to tell from 
from the exodus out of Egypt to get them to Joshua 1 on the foot of the Jordan going into the promised land. We've got 40 years and Joshua was being trained that entire 40 years. In fact, look at Exodus now chapter 17. We left off last week, Exodus chapter 17, with the people of Israel, Rephidim, and they were thirsty and they complained to God, provide them water out of the rock, but we stopped mid-chapter. We're going to continue on mid-chapter because where the story continues. Verse 8, Then Amalek came up and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, this is the first occurrence of Joshua in the entire Bible, Choose men for us to go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Nathan, you're exactly right. He's going to fight against the Amalekites at Rephidim. So how old is Joshua at this time? We don't know, but he's enough to be a warrior, enough to be the, the lead guy in the army. Most estimates, best estimates, place him about 40. Right? He's like you're my age, right? Like 40 years old. Here he is, Joshua, going to go out and conquer. And Joshua did, verse 10, as Moses told him, fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hands up that Israel prevailed. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. How old is Moses at this time? Eighty. Eighty-year-olds have heavy hands. And it's fallen down. And they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. You know, one of the things interesting about this battle with Amalek, the very first battle that Israel fought, after coming out of the land of Egypt, is it was the Lord who was fighting for them, right? I mean, if Moses holds his hands up and they prevail, and he puts his hand down and they, Amalek prevails, and he puts his hand up and Israel comes and prevails, and he puts his hand down, I think um, Joshua took notice of that. Like any child, right, when they get tall enough, they can push the light switches, they go, poop, they understand the correlation between the light switch and what's happening in the lights. And so also Moses, or Joshua, when he's out there and he's going well, he looks up and Moses is like this. And then things are going bad and he looks up at Moses and his arms are tired. I don't think it was lost on Joshua of the correlation between those two things. I think Joshua understood that the Lord who fights the battles. He learned well that day, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I don't think it was an accident that God was preparing Joshua for future battles. Joshua, when you go out to battles, I'm sure Moses told Joshua, remember where your strength lies. It's not with you. It's with the Lord. And we likewise as well. As we, as we walk with Christ, where is our strength? Christianity is not white-knuckled moralism. Christianity is a, is a total dependence and surrender to the Lord to help us through the day. Sure, Joshua is fighting, and sure we need to fight against lust in the war of the flesh. But God's the secret of your strength. And Joshua learned that. And that's going to be key when he takes the land. We'll turn over to Exodus 24. This is the next time we see Joshua. Um, we see uh, Moses getting the, the law. He's up on Sinai. We don't know much about Joshua, but here we get an insight into Joshua. Chapter 24, verse 12 and 13. Moses has already been up on the mountain once, come down, and now he's ready to go again. And now the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 24:12, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose, there it is, with Joshua his servant. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. And we know this story, right? He's up there on the mountain of God, talking face to face, getting the tablets of the law. And he gets Exodus 25 and 26 and 27 and 28 and 29 and 30 and 31, eight chapters worth. We don't read much about Moses. We don't read much even about Joshua. But in chapter 32, we see 
We read about Joshua. So, so turn over there. This is a sad chapter in the history of Israel. Moses is receiving the law, having the, the closest encounter with God that you can, and the people are down at the base of the mountain worshiping idols. But where was Joshua? Verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets were written on both sides. They're written on the one side and the other. The tablets were God's work, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, as he was going down, when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. So you get the sense that Moses was there with God. He's coming down because he knows there's trouble in the camp. He's meeting Joshua. Joshua doesn't know what's going on in the camp. Because he's been away from the base of the mountain. I think that Joshua is halfway up the mountain. That's what I believe. And Moses said, It's not the cry of triumph, nor is it the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. They're singing and dancing and worshiping before the golden calf. And I do believe that that though Moses was um, face-to-face with God having his experience, Joshua was pretty close to having his own 40-day experience on Mount Sinai as well. Maybe it wasn't full glory, but it was certainly close. And, and in that sense, God kept him from idolatry. I think he was ministering to the Lord. And I do believe this is part of the preparation of Joshua to come and bring the people into the Promised Land. It's a bit like the battle at Rephidim. Training the ways of God. And I think here it's training the ways of prayer. What do you do on the mountain for 40 days? Alone. Somehow praying, communicating with the Lord. Something spiritual is going on. I think Joshua learned prayer this day. And and we see even in chapter 33 the fact that Joshua is a praying man regards the, the tent of meaning. So look at Joshua 33. Moses had this tent not the tabernacle, I had this tent that was a good distance away from the camp. So all the Israelites were here in the camp. Moses had this, this tent. He would go into that tent, sought the Lord. And let's pick it up here in verse 9 of Exodus 33. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. So, so Moses would commune with God in this tent. This pillar of, fire, of cloud would come down. And the people, verse 10, when they, they saw that, Stand at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, eat at the entrance of his tent. So when they saw the cloud there, they were worshiping because they knew that something was happening in Moses' tent out there. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. But here it is. When Moses returned to the camp, going from this tent far away into the city, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He stayed out there. Joshua did. I think he was there praying. Spiritual leadership, spiritual leaders are cultivated in the practice of prayer. Bottom line. I mean, I think about a task of a pastor or an elder. What is it? We will will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It's a pastor's call. It's an elder's call. It's a spiritual leader's call. Before he could lead the people of God, he had to follow God in the closet. And that's what he did. He was a praying man. We see him being discipled by Moses in Numbers chapter 11. How about you turn there? It's the next instance we see in the Pentateuch. Numbers chapter 11, we read here about two men, Eldad and Medad, were prophesying in the camp. Now, we don't know what that meant. They are prophesying. It could have been just they were preaching the law, maybe. Uh, they were preaching, leading the people. Maybe it's a reference to a supernatural work that they were receiving inspiration by God and, and they themselves also were preaching, um, predicting what took place. It could be supernatural, it could be natural. We don't know, but somehow these men were standing up, speaking to the people, leading the people on behalf of God. And Joshua, it's interesting here, took offense at their actions. Verse 27, Numbers 11:27. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Like, there's this monstrosity taking place. And Joshua, the son of Mun, Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And I love what Moses responded. He said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Uh, are you jealous because I'm not the one there? Because someone else is leading? 
He said, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Joshua had been a personal assistant to Moses, was with him on the mountain, was with him in the tent, stayed in the tent, whatever, it was close by. And um, now Moses is discipling him, cultivating in him the spiritual attitudes necessary to lead spiritually. And here was teaching him about humility. Moses took no offense at others arising and leading. Moses knew that it wasn't about him that they're leading the people out. Moses knew that it was all about the Lord. Exodus 3, Exodus 4, right when he started, he was reluctant. And it was God who pushed him and encouraged him along to be this great leader. And I think that Joshua did learn a thing or two about humility that day. He learned from the most humble man on the planet. Numbers 12, verse 3. Moses was very humble, more than any man was on the face of the earth. Why was Moses such a great leader? I believe because he was a humble man. And what would be the secret to Joshua's success as well? He'd be a humble man. Not taking the glory to himself, but realizing that it's all God. God is the one who fights the wars. I need to pray and plead to Him. I need to walk in humility before others and before God. Another attribute about Joshua, he was a man of faith. And this was mentioned before. I think, Tim, you mentioned he was one of the spies. Just after Israel had been redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, Moses sent 12 spies to search out Canaan. Their names are given in Numbers 13, verses 4 through 15. We won't go through all their names for the sake of time. But it is significant because Caleb and Joshua were two of these spies. And having spied out the land, they came back. Twelve of them had a bad report. Verse 27 includes what they say. They said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Right? They're bringing back the fruit of the land. Look at how good this is. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, tremble, tremble, we saw the descendants of Anak there. These are like monster kind of people. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. These people are everywhere. It's not just vacant land for us to come in and, and uh, just claim homestead, whatever, just uh, establish a land, sit and squat on the land. No, we've got to conquer people and, and they're everywhere. They're in the mountain, we're in the hill country, we're in the river, by the great sea. They're all over. Their counsel comes in verse 21. We are not able to go up against the people for they are too strong for us. So they, verse 32, says, they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw are men of great size. And there we saw the Nephilim we saw these giant people in the land and they're going to conquer us. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we become like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in, in their sight. In other words, these guys are too big for us. They're too numerous for us. They're too large for us. The task is too daunting for us. We dare not take the land from these people because they will annihilate us. We'll be done. Finish. Kaput. Let's not go. But two of the spies sang a different tune. They trusted the Lord. They were... Joshua and Caleb. In chapter 14, verse 6, we see them tearing their clothes. It's a sign of contrition, kind of, of anger, sign of remorse, sign of, no, 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 we must take the land. That's what they said. Verse 7, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only, here's their exhortation, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. For they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. In other words, by all means, let's take the land. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's not rebel against the commands of the Lord. Well, the people, it's very interesting, did not take heed to Joshua and Caleb's advice. According to verse 10, they attempted to stone them with stones and it was only the appearance of the glory of the Lord that distracted them from stoning the people. It took divine intervention. 
The verdict was clear. Chapter 14, verse 29 through 30, because they didn't believe, he says, verse 29 of chapter 14, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upwards, who have grumbled against me, Surely you shall not come into land which I swore to you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And this sets up the whole wandering. This is Numbers. This is Deuteronomy. Just wandering around. Forty years in the wilderness. A million people out there without any place to go. Just wandering in the wilderness before they could get into the promised land. Two people of age 20 and older are able to enter. That would be Joshua and Caleb. Everyone else had to die out so think about this after 40 years of wandering we come to Joshua chapter 1 how old is is Joshua this time? 80. not 8 eight, 80 exactly I think he's 80 years old he's at least he's at least 60 um, he was a commander he died at the age of 110. So all the book of Joshua takes 30 years, perhaps. I think he's 80 years old. Just like Moses, right? When Moses, the parallels between Joshua and Moses are amazing. Moses, you know, was, was called at, um, at, at 40, actually went out, was exiled from 40 to 80, came back at age 80 to lead the people out of bondage. But he was preparing him in Midian. And so likewise, Joshua from age 40 to 80, God was preparing him in the crucible of the wanderings and all these different lessons. Preparing him to be a, a man who trusts the Lord. Preparing to be a man of prayer. Preparing to be a, a humble man who trusts in all things. And I just, before we get into Joshua, my second point, before we get into the conquest, let me just say, fathers, what are you doing with your children to prepare them to fight the battles of life? What are you doing? Because there are battles out there for them to fight. There are battles of purity, sexual purity. What, what are you doing now while the cement is wet so as to prepare them to go out in battle? As I alluded to earlier, my, my work of my teenagers is only increasing as I have input in their lives more and more in recent days spiritually just to protect them from the spiritual dangers out there because they are. And they need to enter the world like Joshua. Well, here we come to the conquest, my second point. So now we go to Joshua. And we're going to get through all of Joshua in the same manner that we've done before. Just kind of go and skip major chapters here. But this is the beginning of the book of Joshua. We find the people at the edge of the Jordan. Chapter 1, verse 2. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan. I, I think the issue there, Israel's out, and he says, cross the Jordan. They could see the Jordan. They pointed, right? Just like that. Sam, right? Joe, you're Joe, you're Sam. Pointing, just like that, Joe, right? There's the Jordan. This Jordan, that's the Jordan you need to cross. And they were all set. They're on the precipice of taking the land. The book of Joshua describes how they did it. Now this book, it's one that's filled with excitement. I was talking to Yvonne last night, and uh, she shared in her college days at UCLA, some of, the, some of the guys particularly said, this is my favorite book of the Bible. Joshua, because it's filled with espionage and there are traitors and there are wars and there are surprising, unusual victories and there's unexpected defeats and there's tactical strategy about how you're going to attack these people and there's deceitful treaties and there's alliances made and we see nations rising and falling and all this exciting stuff taking place in Joshua. It's a high-impact book. It's not the kind of book you get bored with because you see how, how much is taking place. This is a... Uh, a high action thriller. I mean, th this could be a movie. Joshua. Maybe someday they'll come out with a full action movie of Joshua. Well, the actual conquest begins in chapter 2. This is when two men are sent as spies from Shittim to go into Jericho. They're spying out the land. And I think you know the story. They go, and where are our men going to lodge but in the house of a harlot? And so they went to Rahab the harlot's house. And it's interesting what she says. Jericho, right across the Jordan, it's the city of Palms, because the Jordan is low at that point. If you go there, it is a hot and humid place. But it's very close by the Jordan. 
And uh, they know about Israel. The, the rumors have got around, and Rahab says in verse 9 to these spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Now, we don't have time, but we could have looked at these victories of Sihon and Og. Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan. Israel conquered them in the wilderness. Verse 11, When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in heaven, above, and on earth, beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's household to give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And because she had faith, the spies spared Rahab and her family. I want you to notice, though, even how, how Rahab looks at Israel. I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the land has been given to you by God. So you say, who's conquering the land? Israel's conquering the land, but you know what? It's God who gives them. God who conquers the land. As we go through Joshua, this was my big surprise this week in studying. Another big surprise. But my big surprise is how dominant God's sovereignty is in Joshua. God takes full credit for all the victories. All right? and I'll, just, I'll just pick them out for you and point them out as we go. But Rahab here says that I know that God has given it to you. And the actual conquest of Jericho comes in chapter 6. Turn there. We're going to skip over some great chapters you know, I love the when they cross the Jordan, the priest's soles of the feet enter the water and it passes away just like the Red Sea. And I love the story of chapter 5, meeting the captain of the Lord of hosts, that, that God says basically, I'm with you, I'm with you. Probably a pre-incarnate Jesus to fight for them. But we get to chapter 6, and Jericho is prepared for the attack. Verse 1, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. That's how you basically defended yourselves in the days of the Bible. You had, you had cities, you had walls around them. People are going to come up. You're going to hole up inside and you're going to stay inside. You're going to get up on top of your walls and you'll shoot arrows down and throw rocks down from the top of the walls. That's how you, that's how you do it. Hopefully you've got enough food that they won't starve you out. Well, God's plan to conquer this nation was unique. Verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand. There it is, just like Rahab the harlot knew. She had great theology. I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and his valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of the war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. And also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. And then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the shout of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. By all human reasoning, this battle plan would surely fail. I mean, if um, William Gates would say, okay, guys, I, I, I got this plan, right? We're going we're gonna to circle Afghanistan once. And then we're going to circle Afghanistan again. We're going to circle Afghanistan again. And then, then we're going to blow these trumpets and, and you know, everything's going to die. And we're going to go right up and find Osama bin Laden. Is that going to work? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. Taking, horn, taking a city with horns and shouting. But Joshua, a man of faith, followed God's plan. Circled the city the first day. Verses 6 through 11. Circled the city the second day. Verses 12 through 14. Fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, seven times. And then according to verse 20, we see the people shouted. The priests blew the trumpets. The shofars, you know, the ram. When the people heard the shout of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell flat. So the people went up into the city. Every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Every man straight ahead. That means the wall fell out, formed a ramp for them, walked right up into the city, and they took and conquered the city. They destroyed everything according to verse 1. Both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, donkey, the edge of the sword. They did save Rahab because she was faithful to lay the scarlet thread outside her window. But let me ask you, who gained the victory at Jericho? 
Who did? Tell me. God did. They incapacitated a city by blowing horns and shouting. Right? The wall comes down. city's defenseless. Boom. Took care of it. That's why verse 27 says, The Lord was with Joshua and his fame was throughout all the land. More and more people are going to fear because of what takes place. Unfortunately, not all was well inside the Israeli camp. Chapter 7, verse 1. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. And we skipped over that earlier, but it said, when you go in, don't take anything, particularly for yourself. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. When Israel conquered Jericho, Achan took some of the booty for himself. God was not pleased. And so when the people came up against the city of Ai, they were defeated, according to verse 5. You say, why did they lose? There was no reason for them to have lost. When they sent spies to spy out Ai, they say, ah, this is a, a teeny, teeny town, right? No offense, Rich, but it's like Lindenwood, right? There's nothing there, right? We can take, let's just, let's just send a few thousand men, is what they said. A few thousand is probably generous just to conquer them easily. They lost because they lost the favor of God. Once God stopped fighting for them, they didn't get the victories. When God fought for them, they had the victories. The rest of chapter 7 tells the story of the sin of Achan, how he saw the silver and gold, coveted them, took them, concealed them in his tent. Now his family paid for his sin with their lives. But then once the sin was purged from Israel, what happened? Surprise, surprise, chapter 8, they conquered Ai. And they conquered him but an ambush from the rear. They said, they've, they've seen us attack and flee once, so let's, let's, let's send a big troop around the back and, and let us come in and attack, and they're going to flee us again. And, and when they fled, at AI, all the men came out of the city, and then they attacked behind, burned the city, and then the guys turned around, seeing their city in flames, and they were, they were toast. But I ask you, why did the Israelites conquer AI? Because God was with them. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. I will give it, because God gains the victories. And, and I believe you missed the point of Joshua if you think it's a book about a people who conquer with military genius and courage. It's not. It's a book about God's power to give the people a land. I think likewise, you miss the you miss the um, you miss the God's plan for the church as well. If you think the church is all made up of the most genius, wise, strategy people that there are around, because God says in First Corinthians one that when He makes the church, He chooses the the weak and the noble and the base, and the ignorant. He chooses them to build His church, and God builds His church just as much as. Joshua beat and took care of the promised land as well. Joshua's a book about God's power to give the people of God a land. It's about God giving them a land. And they messed up in Jericho, so they messed up in Ai, and we see them messing up again in chapter 9. They have successes and then they have failings, and successes and failings. And the whole time is when they don't trust the Lord. They don't do things God's way. Because God's going to make sure that if you win, you're going to win with me trusting, you trusting me. So there, chapter 9 tells a story about these people in Gibeon. They had heard about what God had done in Jericho and Ai. News spreads quickly. And they concocted a plan. I think it's a great plan. They acted craftily, verse 4. And they set out as envoys and took out worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on them and all the bread of their provision was dry and it had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a far country. Now behold, take a, make a covenant with us. <laughs> I think it's a great plan. They know that they can't beat Israel straight up. And so they try to do things through deception, deceive their potential conquerors. A little bit like terrorists. There's no way that terrorists can match with the United States, so they, they subterfuge. And we would do the same thing. If Iran or Iraq were big powerhouses, we would be terrorizing them too because it's the only way to win. Strategy here. 
So they come in. And to the disgrace of Israel, these people saying they're from a far off land, Israel believed them. In verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Yes, you will live. And these are just like the neighbors, but they came and they deceived them. When it was discovered the Gibeonites were actually living in land, Joshua said, why have you deceived us? And the answer is clear. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you, and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to us. These people had right theology. It was God who was giving the land to them. And we had seen how God was giving the land to them. And so they enslaved them and made them hewers of wood and drawers of water, and they remained in Israel in those days. The big question is this. Why was Israel deceived? Why were they deceived by these people? The answer is simply this. The leaders refused to pray. Look back at verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. You have not because you ask not. And here we see Joshua. He's not a perfect leader. He, uh, he was schooled in the school of prayer and yet here when they needed it most, he failed to pray. And the Gibeonites took advantage of them. They couldn't conquer the Gibeonites because they made this covenant with them. But had they sought God's counsel... They would have destroyed these people. But they sought to conquer land of their own strength without seeking the Lord, and in doing so, they, they failed. Well, in chapter 10, again, we see the Lord exerting His sovereignty to grant Israel victory after a failure, then a victory. The chapter begins five kings making a treaty with Gibeon. They say, Oh, Gibeon, I'm sorry, five kings making a treaty coming together to attack Gibeon. They said, Gibeon has made this covenant with Israel and they're like traitors to us, but now let's intimidate them. Let's go down against Gibeon. And Israel, because they were made this covenant with them, had to go up and fight against this alliance of five kings. Okay, these were the allies. And they're going against the allies. And upon going up to fight, the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 10, verse 8, Do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. And not one of them shall stand before you. Again, look at the reasoning. I have given them to you, therefore do not fear. Right? It's not do not fear so that I will give. It's no, I have given, so don't fear. And you simply need to believe and have faith. And so God fulfilled this promise. And look at how these people were destroyed. Verse 10. The Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Baran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel while they are at the descent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. So let me ask, who gained the victory? There were more killed with the hailstones which God sent from heaven than from the people of Israel. God obtained the victory. In verses 12 and 13, we see God lengthening a day so that the, the Israelites would have more time to avenge the enemies. Right? Who stopped the sun? Who, who stopped the moon to extend the day but the Lord? The Lord is the only one powerful enough to do that. See, the conquest of the land of Canaan is all about God giving Israel to the land that He promised to Abraham. He's giving it. He's exerting every single one of these. You take Jericho, you take Ai, you take the failure of Gibeon, you take... Here are these, these men here at uh, Azekah and Gibeon. And it's all God, God, God doing this. Well, the rest of chapter 10 tells about how Joshua conquered southern Palestine. I'm sure if we had um, more space perhaps in the Bible, there could have been a lot more told, many more stories told like this of Israel, that they conquered when they believed, they didn't conquer when they didn't believe. And the land they didn't conquer was merely a testimony of their faithlessness. Chapter 11 talks about how they took the, the land in the north. I mean, that was their strategy. Cut the land in the middle, take the land in the south, and then take the land in the north. And then the summary, the climax of the book, comes in chapter 21 of Joshua. So turn over there. 
So we've got chapters 12 through 20 really filled with the lands they conquered and which of the tribes of Israel were going to go into which lands and divvying it up and figuring all that out. But by the time we get to 21, here's the climax of the book. Verse 43 says this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and no one of their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all of their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So you say, how did Israel get the land? By military power? By military might? No. It says in verse 43 that the Lord gave Israel all the land. The land they had sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the fathers. He gave them rest from all their enemies, a time of peace. He fulfilled His promise, verse 45. That's the story of the conquest. The story of the conquest is God fulfilling His promises to His people. I want to finish my message this morning by reading a large chunk from Joshua just to drive this point home that the book of Joshua isn't about Israeli, um, Israelite, dominance and strategy and strength. Rather, it's all about God. Chapter 24. Let's look here. This is where we're going to close, close the message today. And as I read this, I'm, I'm going to read, boy, 12, 13 verses. So I, read, I, want, I want you to listen and think about what God is doing and what the people of Israel were doing, okay? Look at the extent of the sovereignty of God, doing it all, doing it all, doing it all, doing it all, because the Bible's all about God making a promise, bringing the people out, and He's the one bringing them into the land. I think we can trust Him. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for the heads and that their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, here it is. Let, let's get united on this thing, okay? Everybody here at Shechem. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is God speaking. He says, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and served other gods. Then I took... Okay? Abraham didn't choose God. God took your father Abraham from the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob. Right? It's the Lord that opens the wombs. I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. That's Edom over there. But to Jacob and his sons, they went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. And then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of the land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, thus I gave them into your hand. And then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you. But not by your sword or your bow, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And I just say, what is the book of Joshua about? about a mighty, strong, powerful God who does everything for us. Now, the mystery of how it is that Israel fights, but God gives, uh, that, that's mystery, but, but it would be a failure to say, no, no, Joshua's all about the people of, of Israel and what they did and how they conquered. 
especially that verse there, verse 12, not by your sword or by your bow. I did it, I did it, I did it. I think God works in such a ways down through history that it's, it's such that he works so that no one can boast, can boast of anything but that they know the Lord. Right, Jeremiah chapter 9. Let, let, let not the wise men boast in his wisdom. Let the strong man boast in his might. But what should they boast in? Not, not the rich man boast in his riches, but, but let us boast in God that we know God. So Paul said, right, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of Christ. Right? God accomplished it all. God's the one who sent his son for us to die for us. We merely need to believe like Israel did. Great verses to close with the message Joshua is here, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served beyond the river, right, Abraham, and in Egypt, as you adapted some Egyptian customs, and you serve the Lord. There's the exhortation. Fear the Lord and serve him. And my exhortation to you, Rock Valley Bible Church, same thing. Fear the Lord and serve him. We have a great master. But, but if you don't want to serve the Lord or serve Him. I say, you choose for yourselves who you want to serve. Why don't you serve the God of money? Why don't you serve the God of your cottage? Why don't you serve the God of your security? Why don't you serve the God of your internet? Why don't you serve the God of whatever, your family? Whatever. Because that's what He says. You choose for yourselves this day whom you serve if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. You can serve the Father, serve the, the gods your Father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land in which you're living. I just know that's for me and my house. We're serving the Lord. Grown up in a house, 50 years of faithful marriage with my parents, and I just want to continue that. We're serving the Lord. I exhort you to serve the Lord. And if not, boy, serve whatever God you want because you're all going to miss it unless you serve Christ. That's what Joshua was doing. Just trust in the Lord, serving Him, and God brought him into the promised land. And so likewise, God will help us through Christ to face all the battles we face today. Let's pray. Lord, your sovereignty is all over the page of the Bible. Even Yvonne and I were reading this last night, right before we went to bed, in Proverbs 21, verse 1, about the king's heart. It's like waters and channels. You direct it whichever way you will. And if you direct the heart of the king... You direct the hearts of, of all of us as well. And I pray, Lord, for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, we might never, ever diminish the glory of your sovereignty, that you are the one who rules and reigns over all, that as Daniel said, no hand can thwart your will. No one can question you, saying, what have you done? You're the one that places the stars in the heavens. None of them are missing. You're the one that establishes times and boundaries for when it is that we live, where it is that we live. And I pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight of that, your control over our lives. Lord, not to then trust you with a fatal deism, but that we might be strong and courageous to realize that you're causing all things in our lives to happen for good. And so as we trust you, may we may be as Joshua. And I would pray that, that our, our experience would be that we would meet with the successes of life, the victories not because we've fought them or found them, but because we've trusted you in and through the difficulties uh, that we wade through. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us at church, help us individually to be people who trust you in every way. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week we are in the Judges. As we look at the time of the Judges, you can read through Judges if you want to prepare for next week. And other than that, you are dismissed, and I will meet with the children right up here. Thank you. Have a great day. Don't forget the wedding cake. Is it coming? <laughs>